Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Commonwealth Voices is a podcast about citizens coming together to participate in democracy and influence the institutions that shape their lives. Welcome to Commonwealth Voices. I'm Royfield Brown. I'll be your host and guide in the series featuring stories from across the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth covers 20% of the world's land area and six continents, with an estimated population of 2.4 billion people, that is collectively a third of the world population, each with their own unique voice. The Commonwealth Foundation supports people's participation in democracy and development, and Commonwealth Voices brings you those people's stories. The Foundation recently hosted the Commonwealth People's Forum, focused on the theme of inclusive governance. Today I'm speaking to BJ Christian Ryan, the Director General of the Commonwealth Foundation. Yeah, I can hear you. Loud good, and clear. good, good, good. So you're you're in uh, you're in Africa. I'm in Accra. Yeah. Fantastic. How often do you get there? You know, it's the first time I've been to Accra. Stop it. I, I thought that you Commonwealth people were all worldly wise and travelled everywhere. No, listen. It's only two years ago I got to go to Canada for the first time. <laughs> so how long have you been working for the Commonwealth? 13 years. And they've only just years. given you a passport now? Yeah. <laughs> they don't let me out very often. <laughs> so VJ, what exactly do you do for the Commonwealth? I'm the Director General of the Commonwealth Foundation, so I'm accountable overall for all of the activities of the organisation. I report to our member states. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have 46 member states, but all 53 Commonwealth countries have an interest in the work of the Commonwealth Foundation, and our work touches uh, each of those countries. So it's fairly safe to say that you're one of the most important people on the planet. Oh, <laughs> I sleep very well, so I can't say that. That can't be true. <laughs> now, I- explain this to me. So every two years, the run-up to the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, there is the Commonwealth People's Forum, which is um, a large opportunity for civil society to engage with Commonwealth leaders on developments and issues. How did you put together the programme, VJ? What did you have in mind when you set out that blank sheet of paper? I think there are three things that we wanted to achieve with the Commonwealth People's Forum. 
We wanted to make sure that the agenda was relevant to civil society across the Commonwealth. That's the first thing. The second thing that we wanted to do was to make sure that any outputs from the Commonwealth People's Forum were useful. And I think the third thing, which was perhaps the most challenging, was to make sure that it was a coherent agenda, that it made sense. This was a challenge given the diversity of the Commonwealth. You can imagine with the number of civil society organisations and the range of issues that civil society organisations are dealing with across across the globe. They're trying to find a common thread that makes a three-day event useful and, uh, and intelligible is quite a challenge. BJ, institutional racism seems to me like a, somewhat of a, a thorny topic. And obviously it springs from and serves to perpetuate systematic, deep-rooted exclusion. The forum that we're going to look at today looks at the role of institutions in perpetuating structural discrimination within governance. How do you go about picking a panel to discuss a topic like this? I think the first thing to do is to recognise that institutional racism isn't something that applies in only one Commonwealth country. I think we have to recognise that across the Commonwealth, governance structures reflect power structures. And accordingly, there are people that are going to be excluded from those structures. And part of the Commonwealth Foundation's mandate is to bring the less heard voices to those discussions. So I think that's important. I think the other thing to say is that a lot of the um, early thinking on institutional racism was done in the host country for the heads of government meeting in the United Kingdom. And the concept has been discussed and developed for a considerable period of time now. So you don't want to ignore that. You want to make sure that that is brought into the discussion, but at the same time, not using that as the exclusive starting point, not as the only reference point, recognizing that others in society and in other countries, similar issues are being rehearsed. So we wanted to get diversity of experience around and perspective around the table, recognizing that institutional racism exists in the global north as well as the global south. Um, to make sure that the outcomes of the discussion were relevant to all Commonwealth citizens. Do you think that the history of the Commonwealth means that this topic is important to the Commonwealth and the Commonwealth going forward? Undoubtedly. One of the things that we understood very clearly at the Commonwealth People's Forum was that if the Commonwealth is going to move forward as an institution, the historical legacies of colonialism uh, and associated institutional racism need to be named. One of the underlying themes around heads of government meeting was the need for Commonwealth renewal. And our perspective at the Commonwealth Foundation is that absolutely uh, renewal is on the agenda, but it must address some of the historical issues. Commonwealth Voices brings you the conversations from Commonwealth People's Forum 2018. I'd like to welcome you all, Commonwealth People's Forum, to a discussion on institutional racism. We have three very distinguished individuals who are going to shortly explain what institutional racism is. Then we're going to have a longer discussion involving yourselves. To my left 
is Deshepo Madlingozi. Um, he's come from South Africa. Um, he is a senior lecturer at the University of Pretoria, Kalpana Kanibidian, an Indian sociologist and lawyer. She's the current director of the Council for Social Development. To my far left is Mariah Larassai. She's the director of IMCAN, leading black feminist network organization and members in England, Wales, and Scotland. IMCAN members are specialist, dedicated women's organizations and community groups working to end violence against black and minority ethnic women and girls. My name is Onyeka Nubia. I'm a lecturer in law and an historian. Uh, good afternoon. I think before I start defining and proposing solutions to institutional racism, I'd like to remind all of us what is racism. Of course, racism is not about prejudice. It's not about stereotypes. Racism is a structure of power, a structure of exploitation. And therefore, if we turn to institutional racism, here we are talking about institutions that are created by racism, but that also legitimize and perpetuate racism in two ways. The first thing is the work of legitimizing racism. So the work of these institutions is to perpetuate certain discourses about those who are not white. For example, black people are lazy, sexually deviant, that in India, for example, Dalit people are spiritually degraded, or that in, uh, in Australia, Aboriginal people abuse their kids, that they abuse alcohol and so forth. These discourses therefore move the problem away from society to these individuals. And therefore people say the problem is not society, the problem are these individuals. The other thing that these institutions do is to perpetuate white supremacy. In our discussion on racism, we don't focus a lot on this. Normally, when we focus on institutional racism of racism, we focus on secondary impact. So exclusion, invisibility, non-recognition. The primary impact is to perpetuate the idea that some human beings are superior, some are inferior. Now, if you go to a place like South Africa, apartheid formally ended in 1994, but because the focus of the ANC, the ruling party, was on exclusion and segregation, the solution was integration. Now, the problem with integration is that it leaves the structures of racism intact. It leaves the norms and discourses of racism intact. So that's how racism is able to perpetuate itself because the focus is on a secondary cause, exclusion. I will be addressing the theme of this panel from the specific experience of India. I will be focusing on institutional discrimination based on caste and religion. We have in India the hierarchical caste system, the cluster of castes called the scheduled castes, which have the right to affirmative action and special protections under criminal law constitutes 16.6% of the population. The scheduled tribes or the indigenous peoples constitute 8.6%. Muslims constitute 4.2%. Christians constitute 2.3%. Having said that, I would like to begin with a story. About 30 years ago, in a village in Andhra Pradesh, women who didn't belong to the so-called untouchable caste that we call Dalit caste, but uh, a woman from a dominant caste who saw a construction worker couple and that couple had a small baby with them, a baby girl who was playing in the mud as the couple worked. And this woman did not have children and asked the construction workers if they would give her their child. The construction workers belonged to an untouchable caste. They gave her the child 
and this lady brought the child up ostensibly as her own, but eventually had children of her own, and this child in her growing years was made to do the menial work of the family. At the age of 15, she was married to a person who was alcoholic, had a criminal record much older than her by her adoptive mother, and had three children by the time she was 18, a victim of domestic violence, and in her own words, it was not a family that saw women as anything but chattel. So with three children in tow, no education, she walked out of her husband's house to go back to the village where her parents, her adoptive parents came from, and settled in the untouchable colony in the village, didn't return to her adoptive mother's house. She raised these three children of hers on her own and educated them. One of the children, when he went into university, he said that he wanted to work, and she said no. He went on to register for a PhD in the Central University of Hyderabad. He was active in the Ambedkar Students Association of Dalit students primarily, and fighting against caste, fighting against discrimination, fighting for the rights, right to dignity of the untouchable castes. He was then ostracized within the university community by the administration for raising issues of caste discrimination and religious discrimination, and for raising questions on the death penalty. He committed suicide in January. This was Rohit Vemula, who sparked a national movement of students and Dalits across university campuses in India with his death. But it needed him to die in order for these issues to come up to the center. India is still in ferment on the issue of caste discrimination. The reason why he died was when the university authorities rusticated him and removed, they basically issued the social boycott and removed four students all from Dalit groups and told them they cannot step into the hostels or any common areas. There was interference from the ministry at the national level, interference from the ruling party legislators at the local level, and inaction by the police. And this is the working of institutional discrimination in India. It also represents the interlocking of different kinds and different forms of discrimination. Untouchability, the untouchability provisions in the Constitution when they were adopted in 1950 saw untouchability as a great problem, but one that could definitely be tackled in a very short time. 70 years later, we have a student who commits suicide because this world is not acceptable to him. We have hundreds of thousands of students pouring into the streets and stalling work on university campuses because they come out with the fact of discrimination, the stigmatization of students belonging to Dalit communities within university campuses. And they link up their experience on campuses with the experience of Dalits living in villages and towns and subjected to a routine, routinized violence in their villages and towns at the hands of the police, at the hands of the judiciary, and elected representatives. I always find it slightly surprising when I'm invited to be part of such conversations. I inevitably think, why have they let me in? Don't they know I'm an activist and an advocate? I may cause trouble. <laughs> By way of placing myself in this conversation and also honouring a long tradition of appropriate greeting, let me just say something about who I am, not just what I do. I was born in London and raised in the mountains of Jamaica. I'm the descendant of people that were trafficked, enslaved and forced to labour on white British-owned plantations in the Caribbean. I'm also the descendant of those that were exploited through indentureship. 
And yes, I'm also descended from those that were responsible for the brutality and injustice. My work is black, queer, feminist labour. I have a personal stake in ending all racism. Firstly, I want to say that institutional racism doesn't exist in a vacuum. The late Aisha Vanandnan, director, former director of the Institute of Race Relations here in England, said, Institutional racism is that which covertly or overtly resides in the policies, procedures, operations and culture of public or private institutions, reinforcing individual prejudices and being reinforced by them in turn. I appreciate this definition because it connects the structural with the everyday, the system with the individual, and for me offers a sense of institutional racism as dynamic rather than static. This gives us space to consider the risks of institutional racism becoming more embedded, as well as the potential for disruption and for dismantling that racism. For me, understanding institutional racism requires a truth-telling. And thus, I can't think about it without thinking about historical context. While scholars of colonization, European Enlightenment, etc., debate the chicken and egg dynamics of colonization or empire and racism, we know that in the UK and elsewhere, the institutionalizing of racism is deeply connected to the colonial project. The expansion of empire helped to establish a framework of basic racist truths. So let's consider an important piece of information from the past. When the UK abolished slavery in 1838, compensation was paid to people all across these islands that had owned human beings. No compensation has ever been paid to the people that were enslaved or to their descendants. One contemporary comparison would be paying money on the basis of potential loss of earnings to a man who had been trafficking women for the purpose of sexual exploitation while telling the survivors of this abuse to just get on and make their way in the world. Institutional racism enables the creation of policies which protect the economic and welfare interests of one group of people, in this case white Britons, at the expense of the other group of people, in this case African, Caribbean enslaved peoples and their descendants. Now let's consider two other pieces of information from the most, more recent past and from today. In the post-World War II era, thousands of people from the British Commonwealth were invited. Yes, you know, that's the thing sometimes I have to tell people that my parents were actually invited here. To come to rebuild the war-damaged motherland. The Caribbean communities, often referred to as the Windrush Generation, arrived with high expectations that were very quickly dashed as they encountered the realities of the not-so-caring motherland. From this migration, race relations theory and policy merged. This affected everything from education and policing to the funding of women's shelters. Many of the children that arrived in that era have lived and worked and paid taxes here all their lives, yet they're now at risk of deportation. Institutional racism enables the establishment of parameters which can be enshrined in law, which exclude, penalise and cause harm. And different versions of this exist all through the world. I want the holders of power to do some work. And it requires letting go of some of that power, sharing power equitably, and that in itself involves an interrogation of what equitable looks like. My definition might differ from yours. Gayatri Spivak speaks about ancestral debt. It's worth thinking about who has benefited from institutional racism and the debt that is owed. And as Eve Tuck and Kay Wen Yang note, decolonization is not a metaphor. This is not about doing us a favor. For many of us, this is simply reparation. Seppa, you mentioned Frederick Douglass and the famous quote, um, power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has and it never will. How relevant is that when it comes to institutional racism? The quote is still relevant because if you think about the idea that institutional racism <coughs> is not about individuals, it's about the subjugation of an entire group of people, mm. an entire category of people, there's a need for that group to organize. The problem is that in the past we tended to see racism as individual. 
that this guy is discriminated, is excluded, and so forth. And therefore, there was no understanding that this is about power, this is about structure, this is about the exclusion of an entire group of people. I'll go back to the case of South Africa, where the struggle was not really mass-based, where the struggle was really <coughs> elitist. And therefore, the idea was to have a negotiation between two elites, the white you know, elites and the black elites, and the solution was to integrate the black elites. And therefore, what happened is that the structure of racism still continues in South Africa. In fact, the black government, therefore, perpetuates this. So, right? Seppo, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Do you believe that people of African descent can be the perpetuators of institutional racism? Because there's, there's a perspective or a view yeah. that um, people of colour yeah. cannot perpetuate racism since they do not hold power. Well, I mean, that takes us back to the definition of racism. Five things. One, it's, it's a discourse, it's a way of seeing. Two, that creates races. Three, that, you know, creates hierarchies. One race is superior, one is inferior. And then fourthly, most importantly, creates institutions that will enforce that subjugation. And fifthly, that will also make it invisible. Now, there's no way in the world where black people hold power over white people in such a way that black people can subjugate white people as a category. Of course, black people are human beings. They can be discriminatory. They can have prejudice. But if racism is a structure of power exploitation, black people don't have that power anywhere in the world. So what you're saying is that black people don't have the power to subjugate people because they're white? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. But but, but because the black elite can benefit from the world of our partners, from the world of racism, the black government can perpetuate (laughs) racist structures to the benefits of the black elite. How do you give people that are voiceless a voice? And then how do you give them the power to implement what they have seen since they are voiceless and powerless? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Because... The drafters of the Constitution, of which Dr. Ambedkar was a key architect, expressed that you are building a political democracy, which is one person, one vote, on an unequal society where each person doesn't have the same value. The challenge of equality is going to be extremely difficult. And so the Constitution mandates a range of special protections 
particularly for people belonging to the scheduled castes, and also the question of the freedom of religion, So, we, because we can't forget that that foundational moment was also the moment of partition, right. where then in India you had a Muslim minority, and you needed specific protections given the violence of partition. So you had constitutional protections in place. We have a very unusual provision in the Constitution, which is not just the non-discrimination clause, but Article 17, which bans untouchability. So the idea was that the minute you put it into the Constitution, the idea of constitutional morality would take over and gradually replace what he called public morality. But 70 years later, we realized that that hasn't happened. We also have special criminal law which protects Dalits from assault by upper castes because that's quite a normal thing. And that law was enacted in 1989. But of course, that doesn't mean that Dalits haven't ceased to be oppressed. But I think what is different about this moment is that in the last 30 years or so, there has been a huge growth of a mass movement among Dalits, a Dalit resistance, which after the death of Rohit Vemula, spread as never before to university campuses. And so for me, that is the only source of strength. Dissent and resistance is the only source of strength and the only way to end impunity. And that is what is now being targeted, so that we have to remind the Indian state again and again that the right to dissent and the right to resistance are also constitutionally protected. Now, you spoke about the intersectionism of class, gender, sex, sexuality, etc., class. I wondered how someone, say, like myself, acknowledges my own privilege, male privilege, heterosexual privilege, whatever privilege I have. How do I acknowledge that? And how do I then unpick that to be useful in combating institutional racism? And how do we also contextualise those who offer some benefit for the cause of fighting institutional racism and yet have their own contradictions. How do we contextualize those people, historical people, um, the same Stokely Carmichael who coined the phrase, some people have real issues about him, and they say, oh yes, he coined institutional racism, but look at him. And how do we move forward taking you know, the best from each? None of this has ever been simple. There is a way that we can acknowledge the amazing work done by an individual or a group of people, while at the same time critiquing the harm that they did. One of my favourite human beings, musically and spiritually, happens to be Bob Marley. Bit of a stereotype, because I'm Jamaican and I've got dreadlocks. There's ways that actually he contributed to helping to create a particular consciousness that moved beyond the island that he was born on. I would have real problems with so much of his sexism, right? So there's something about understanding how flawed he, would, he was as a human being, while at the same time saying he was valuable nevertheless. Do I think that his behaviour was OK? No. Do I think that he had a contribution that he made? Yes. You know, like all of our icons, I have real problems with Madiba in many ways, right? But also acknowledged how powerful he was on so many levels. So I think that these are some of the challenges that we face. There are white feminists who have made amazing contributions who actually, when I think about their 
language and their thinking around race, it's really problematic. But to avoid the fragmentation and the ruptures that will end up happening for somebody like me, who is doing the work in the space of the intersections, I have to be able to pull that knowledge and the gifting of that work and actually ask that we don't repeat the same mistakes. So for somebody like you, <laughs> the challenge is, yes, have a conversation about how you may experience oppression on the basis of your identity as a black man, but also recognise the ways that you can hold privilege. Does that make sense? It does, it does. How do you confront the most powerful people in the world, bearing in mind that they are the most powerful people in the world? For example, a president of the United States of America. No. Who may or may not, through systems that he creates and has inherited, be a promoter of institutional racism. I mean, for me, I've been inspired by the <clears throat> students in various universities. So what they did in Oxford, in South Africa, in the United States, is that they organized around their own institutions, but also showing how racism continues, even at a place like Harvard uh, Law School, for example. Onyeka, as, as an activist, I want it now. As an advocate, I'm also necessarily pragmatic. When you said about the voiceless, yes. I don't believe in voicelessness. Okay. I believe in people not hearing. We're not voiceless. We just aren't always listened to. The voiceless are, you know, then cannot ever speak, right? Whereas one of the things that we see with everything from the way that the uprisings are taking place across India to Black Lives Matter, and people might go, okay, Me Too movement, why have you got a bunch of celebrities talking about their experiences of violence? But it matters. We're in a time where organising, because of things like social media, can take on new formation. There is a way that you can speed things up in terms of communication because we have things like social media. I heard Stormzy, he's a grime artist here in London for people who don't know, and for Stormzy to go on the stage at the Brits and actually call out Theresa May. Like, there was a moment where I was just like, bro, what are you doing? This is not necessarily the safest thing for you, career-wise. But it was really powerful to have this young black man speak about Grenfell and speak about this thing that happened where kind of working-class people, minoritised people, had basically died and it's like their lives didn't matter. And so it's everywhere. We need to be able to organise in every possible space from the boardroom, although some boardrooms I'd like to get rid of, to the classroom, to the streets, to social media. So now you're sort of taking on the stage further where I wanted us to go, which is to ask the question, how do you see the challenges facing what we have to go up against in terms of institutional racism? How do we move forward? What kind of methods and strategies should we be using? Or should we not disclose what those strategies are? <laughs> <laughs> I think you need a combination of disclosure and non-disclosure. Mm. Yeah. Well, I mean, for me, one of the things that we don't talk about a lot is internalised racism, mm -hmm. which is the idea that some of us have internalised racism. Some or all? <laughs> well, all of us, maybe. <laughs> some of us have... Some is people there anybody in the work. Is well, I mean, some people are doing the work of getting rid of what Dubois called double consciousness. Yes. Right? So, so, so for me, we need to be honest with ourselves that as human beings, we are, you know, we are flawed. We have internalized racism. Can some I, of us want to get rid of racism, but we benefit from... Can I ask you a question yeah. that goes from that? Are you suggesting that every human being is racist? Every human being? Yeah. Including black people? Yes. Every human being this is, is capable... Yeah, I mean, every yeah. human being is capable of prejudice. Right. 
every white person benefits from racism. Yeah. Every white person. Every white person is a beneficiary of racism. Every white person is complicit in racism. Sometimes even those who are in solidarity with us, where they shift our strategies from decolonial strategies, revolutionary uh, strategies, to the courtroom, to liberal strategies. So all of us need to be honest. So, so yeah, I mean, uh, my answer is that all of us are prejudiced. All of us, we want to get rid of racism, but we want to maintain heteronormativity. Mm-hmm. Some people are white, they want to get rid of class, but when we talk about race, ah, they say, no, 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 no. That's, that's you know, we need dialectical yes. materialism. Right, okay, yes. <laughs> you know? Are immigration laws one of those examples of fundamental institutional racism that need to be absolutely and utterly brought down, for example, in this country? And are they purveyors of institutional racism? Is it possible <clears throat> to amend them fairly and equitably so that they are no longer mechanisms of racism, sexism, and sexual inequality and genderism and almost every form of inequality that you could imagine. 2009, 68 people were killed in South Africa. Mm. Killed because they were supposedly not national. Out of those 68 people, half of them were South African, but they were killed because they are dark. So people assume that because they are dark, they come from elsewhere. So that shows you what you're talking about, Mm. that issues of immigration are issues of racism. But secondly, it goes to this issue of internalized racism, where black people can kill other black people because they're supposedly from elsewhere. I feel like it's so live for us here in this country right now. From everything to do with Brexit, the fact that we have children that were raised in this country, that have paid taxes, that have worked their backsides off in this country, that are being told that they're going to be deported to countries that they do not know. Absolutely, immigration laws are a mechanism, or can be, and very often are used as mechanisms of racism. And do I think that those can be amended? I think it requires some really deep analysis about (coughs) what an amendment could look like. Because a state is going to say we have a right to think about who comes into our borders, right? When you're thinking about who comes into your borders, are you thinking about who has left your borders to go where? And how far back are you going to go? Because I can tell you, my people in Ghana or Nigeria or whatever did not invite the Europeans to come and take us across the ocean. So we do need to think about how immigration laws are rooted in histories of racism and continue to be used to perpetuate and perpetrate racism. My name is Kennedy. I'm a Nigerian and I live in Preston, Lancashire here. I never experienced racism until I came to the United Kingdom. And truth be told, why are we discussing this? And I'm thinking to myself, how can you change something that you didn't start yourself? Is it possible to change the, um, or tweak the immigration uh, laws? The truth of the deal is this, at the end of the day, whatever we discuss here and we present it to them, it is up to them to change it or not. So if we are going to eradicate or deal with racism, then we all have to tell ourselves the truth. Why is it always a a black people-dominated conversation when it's actually eating into the fabric of every human community? So until the man who invented racism, until the man who actually built this institution comes to have this dialogue with us, this is just a monologue as long as I'm concerned. Thank you. Thank you for your contribution. Good. Um, did, did you want to respond to that? I, I can say, okay, yeah. I'll say something really quickly. Thank you, Kennedy. I, I, I hear you, and I think there is something about... It would be useful to have somebody here who we could say we're asking for a particular kind of accountability. 
but I don't want us to minimise the kind of strength that comes from having conversations in these kind of spaces, because what we do is, in that we learn and we go away and we have different conversations in all spaces that help to create change. It really can be sometimes the building of different bricks and the layers, so it's important to keep talking. The other thing is, for those of us that have been actively silenced, just the space to speak is incredibly important. And for me, coming to a space called the Commonwealth Forum, knowing how critical I can be of the Commonwealth, there's an irony about it, right? <laughs> so I'm going to ask you to, to get that irony and work with me, yeah? Hi, thank yeah. you. My name is Ian Mangenga from Saya. My question basically um, is looking at the history of institutional racism, right? We can see a timeline where it's constantly changing and reproducing itself. Uh, in South Africa, for instance, we had apartheid, and then we had uh, commodified education, uh, which created a barrier to access to education. So looking at the multi-idiomatic nature of institutional racism, what are some of the ways you see it reproducing itself in the future, especially with the advent of the digital age? And how do you think we can prepare ourselves for that? What is key is to see how racism transmutes itself, changes, becomes much more sophisticated, and we need to be ready for that. We need to see how, even in the digital spaces, we perpetuate racism. We bolster the very institutions, you know, the police state, the intelligence uh, 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 services, and so forth. But I think to, to the question, it's linked to the question of intersectionality. Our project should always be a humanism project. How do we create a world where everyone is a human being? Greetings from Federal Republic of Nigeria. My name is Mr. Blacksy, Olashini Bayomi, representing Royal Corporate Society in Nigeria and the Sham of Nigeria Conversation. Our conversation should center on the way forward and not on what has gone in the past. Because we cannot just come here and be discussing what has gone on in the past. But in the Commonwealth, we have two groups of set of countries. We have, we call them ABCN and others. Australia, Britain, Canada, New Zealand, and others. So these countries, they move in the same direction as far as immigration or some other issues is concerned. But these disparities should be avoided. They, we, are, we say we are one country, we should respect our diversities, and we should try and see how we can work together and move the Commonwealth forward. Thank you. Thank you. Woman there. Um, yeah, I, I'm from Malta, which was with the rest and is now a bit more with the, with the West. And it's, it's an interesting shift. And it, it's on this, really, that I... More my sense of discomfort with myself and just to raise a question. I was really glad that you brought immigration in towards the end because in Malta, what we can speak about immigration and, and, and racism within many different contexts, but in Malta, if you are black, you are assumed to be a refugee, stroke, illegal immigrant, and I'm using the term illegal immigrant yeah. on purpose yeah. because that in itself suggests that you don't even have a right to live, yeah. let alone yes. to travel. And I'm raising the question of a voice, and, and you raise the question, are they voiceless or is it that people aren't listening? And I have an image, a photo, and I'm on it, which I'm, I mean, it's funny, but it's not funny at all, of a conference about 10 years ago in Malta, and you, there's a big banner behind us saying, celebrating diversity, speaking about racism, and we're all white. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but that was because there wasn't anybody that was prepared to speak, mm. because the vast majority of the black people living in Malta were either beneficiaries of protection with no hope of ever getting citizenship, and that situation remains, 
or rejected asylum seekers. Now, the situation has changed a little bit because over time they gain confidence, but the reality is that there are some spaces that they might be able to speak in. There are some spaces where they can't. Detention is one of them. There are times where they may be listened to, but there are moments where they cannot speak and they will not be heard, and that's within the general elections. And this is where you really see where immigration, or more specifically citizenship, becomes exclusionary and where black people are actually, yes, voiceless. They're not silenced. Well, they're silenced, and and they are voiceless. They cannot speak within that space. And I think we need to look at that as an intersectionality more as well. Okay, great. And, and since we're at the Commonwealth Heads of Government, is there a message that we'd want to send to heads of government of the Commonwealth about that? Maybe tell the truth that it's not the Commonwealth, that it's specific wealth, that the wealth is far from common, and that that has an impact on immigration policies. Many people have said that those who are counted least for whatever reason are also associated as being less than human. So those who get pushed to the bottom for whatever reason and suffer become less than human. And then our tolerance of their destruction is increased as we accept that they are less than human. And as intolerance spreads from one group, it then moves to another. So a group that previously thought that they would be untouched by it. Oh, it's just them over there being touched. Suddenly it then becomes them and their families and their children and people that thought, well, I'm free of that because I'm not one of them, suddenly find that they are under the microscope. So therefore it's prerequisite upon all of us to be committed to fighting institutional racism in all its forms. So I want to thank you all for coming and um, I hope that you have learned something and hope that you've contributed something and that we've all got something from today. So that's it for today's podcast, but you can continue the discussion online by tweeting us at Commonwealth.org or by finding us on Facebook with the same username. That's Commonwealth.org. You'll find links on Facebook and Twitter to Commonwealth Insights policy briefs that explore a whole range of issues such as these we've explored in this show. Anything from migration, climate justice to women negotiating peace. We implore you to go onto Apple Podcasts or a podcatcher of your choice and go and write us a review because it helps visibility for the show and gets more people then to be aware of us so they can listen too. I'm Rayful Brown. You've been listening to Commonwealth Voices. The Commonwealth Foundation. More voices for a fairer world. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.